3: And what did you have?
0: What
4: was yours? What language did you speak then? I am a
5: revolutionary. Let's about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us
4: and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately our people's future resides on what we do outside of the white house
6: african descent fairly america failed she put
8: And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. And good
5: evening and welcome to Our Common Ground, Transforming Truths to Power, one broadcast at a time. On this December 7th, we join the world in saying farewell, Madiba, on the death of Nelson Mandela, the former president of the, the, the of South Africa, and the founding leadership of Spear of a Nation. Tonight at our Common Ground, we'll be looking at the authentic era of South African Revolution and the leadership brought to it under the Spear of the Nation by Nelson Mandela. You know, it is really interesting that many are ordinarily recalling that Nelson Mandela was labeled a terrorist. It occurred to me this uh, week, as we have been thinking about his contribution to uh, the revolutions of modern history, why F.W. de Klerk, who was the president preceding um, President Mandela, was never called a terrorist, even though his regime terrorized a nation of people for decades. When the ANC engaged in self-defense, when they made allies around the world who believed in their call for freedom, they, including Nelson Mandela, were labeled a terrorist. And we're going to be talking about that and many issues about what the life of the revolutionary Nelson Mandela was all about, Tata Madiba, Nelson Mandela is now gone from us, and we should never forget his revolutionary leadership, we should never, ever be remiss in remembering why he was imprisoned, how he was imprisoned, and we should dance and clap and sing the songs of South Africa's long struggle against apartheid, which continues to exist. Thousands of people, however, came on the streets in learning of his death to both mourn and celebrate the life that shaped their country. Newborns on their mother's arms to the veterans of the struggle, people of all colors and creed gathered outside the landmark of Nelson Mandela all over the country, looking at and remembering his remarkable journey from radical activist to political prisoner to Nobel Peace Laureate to president to being in his final years, an icon, the world's most hallowed Madiba, was a rare and fierce revolutionary leader. And we should never allow mainstream media, our authors from the right, to convince us that that part of his life never, ever existed. So tonight we're going to be talking about his leadership of Spear of a Nation with our guest, Dr. Tommy J. Curry, Professor of Philosophy at Texas A&M University. Dr. Curry's work spans across the various fields of philosophy, jurisprudence, Africana studies, and gender studies. Though he was trained in American and continental philosophical traditions, Dr. Curry's primary research interests are in critical race theory and Africana philosophy, and we're so pleased to have him back with us at our common ground tonight and we thank each and every one of you for joining us in order to get started tonight we all need to be on the same page so of course we have some learning tools for you and we hope before we bring on dr curry that we can provide you With information, filling in the gaps of what you do know, it was amazing to me as I saw a report on young people, young adults in this country who were asking the question, excuse me, am I missing something? Who is this man, Nelson Mandela, everybody is talking about? Thank you for being with us. And um, we hope that we can empower your understanding of what a true revolutionary is all about. I'm Janice Graham, and this is Our Common Ground.
6: domination, and I have fought against black domination. I have cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society in which all persons will live together in harmony and with equal opportunities. It is an idea for which I hope to live for and to see realized. But my Lord, if it needs be, it is an idea for which I am prepared to die. One of the mistakes which has some political analysts make is to think that their enemies should be our enemies, that we can and we will never do. We have our own struggle which we are conducting. We are grateful to the world for supporting our struggle. But nevertheless, we are an independent organization with its own policy. And the attitude of every country towards our attitude towards any country is determined by the attitude of that country to our struggle. Madiba,
5: Nelson Mandela is dead at the age of 95 at our common ground tonight we'll be looking at the legacy of this great revolutionary warrior and the era of spear of the nation and his leadership our guest dr. Tommy J curry professor of philosophy Texas A&M University good night And farewell, Tata Madiba. And we should never forget his revolutionary leadership. We remember why he was imprisoned and how. Here at our common ground, spear of the nation, Nelson Mandela, the authentic era of South African revolution. Madiba was a rare and fierce revolutionary leader. Tonight we talk about his leadership of Spear of a Nation, the former political prisoner who became the first president of a post-apartheid South Africa and whose heroic life and towering moral structure makes him one of the world history's most influential revolutionary statesman and politician. He led the struggle to replace South Africa's apartheid regime, a multiracial democracy. To a country torn apart by racial divisions, Madiba became its most potent symbol of national unity. The media would like us to remember him as the power of forgiveness and reconciliation healing deep-rooted wounds and ushering in an era of peace after decades of conflict between blacks and whites. Who was Nelson Mandela? And what was his most important role in world history?
2: Mandela, began his life herding sheep and cattle in the rolling hills of South Africa's Eastern Cape. In his autobiography, part of which was written secretly while in prison, Mandela wrote, I was not born with a hunger to be free. I was born free. Free in every way that I could know. Free to run in the fields near my mother's hut. Free to swim in the clear stream that ran through my village. Free to roast milies under the stars and ride the broad backs of slow-moving bulls. It was only when I began to learn that my boyhood freedom was an illusion. When I discovered as a young man that my freedom had already been taken from me, that I began to hunger for it. Nelson Mandela's given name, Holy Shatter, literally means tagging at the branches of a tree. But at school, he was given the name of another famous leader.
6: When I went to school, the lady teacher, Mr. Dingane, asked, what is your name? I told him my African name, her uh, holy She says, no, I don't want that one. You must have a Christian name. So I said, no, I don't have one. She says, you are from today, you are going
2: to be Nelson. So henceforth. He would be known to the world as Nelson Mandela as the son of a chief Nelson Mandela had access to the best education available to black people in South Africa at the time studying at Fort Hare University where he first became involved in student protest his refusal to accept injustice unfairness and inequality would last a lifetime South Africa 1941 in his early 20s Nelson Mandela moved to Johannesburg where he first encountered the racial discrimination that would later become entrenched in law by the apartheid government working on the mines and later as a clerk in a law firm Mandela pursued his law studies and joined the African National Congress the oldest black political organization in South Africa
6: It was when I came into the African National Congress that I realized that uh, costas are only a part of uh, the African people. That the task of the ANC was to unite the African people and out of them build a nation. In
2: 1948, the nationalist government was voted into power by the white electorate in South Africa. And the battle lines were clearly drawn
6: comrade oliver said well i like this because we now know we have an enemy in power and i think that we're going to have a better opportunity of mobilizing our people our policy is one which is called by an african's word apartheid and i'm afraid that has been misunderstood so often It could just as easily, and perhaps much better, be described as a policy of good neighborliness. In
2: 1955, the ANC and other organizations called upon people of all races to gather in Town to approve the Freedom Charter, a blueprint for a free, democratic, and multiracial South Africa in which all races would be treated equally. Nelson Mandela, one of the chief organizers of the gathering, was banned by the government from attending and was forced to watch proceedings from the sidelines. In 1956, the organizers of the Freedom Charter and other leaders in the Congress movement were charged with high treason. The trial was specifically designed to occupy the opposition and keep them out of politics. It dragged on for four and a half years, and it would be another 40 years before the Freedom Charter finally bore fruit. South Africa, 1960, Sharpeville, a black township in the industrial area south of Johannesburg, a peaceful crowd gathered to protest against the past laws was shot at by police. 69 people died. The nationalist government imposed martial law. All opposition was banned and thousands were jailed. When it became clear that all means of peaceful negotiation had been exhausted, Mandela went underground to lead the armed struggle.
6: We have made it very clear in our policy But uh, South Africa is a country country of many races. There is room for all the various races in this country. There are many people who feel that it is useless and futile for us to continue talking peace and non-violence against a government whose reply is only savage attacks on an unarmed and defenseless people.
2: Key government installations were targeted for sabotage. Mandela became known as the Black Pimpernel. In 1962, Mandela was captured, charged with leaving the country illegally, and sentenced to imprisonment for five years. Shortly afterwards, his ANC comrades were captured with evidence which incriminated Mandela. He returned to court for the Rivonia trial, where he and eight others faced a possible death penalty.
6: The very speech which was made by him,
3: consolidated the spirit of the people outside because it was a defiant spirit.
6: I have fought against white domination and I have fought against black domination. I have cherished the idea of a democratic and free society in which all persons live together in harmony and with equal opportunity. It is an idea which I hope to live for and to achieve. But if
3: need be,
6: it is an idea for which I am
1: prepared to die.
2: When Nelson Mandela and several of his colleagues were sentenced to life imprisonment in 1964, the political convicts were sent to Robben Island, the bleak island prison of the Western Cape coast. Nelson Mandela was 45 years old when he became prisoner number 466 of 1964. He would be in his early 70s before he would again be a free man. Forced to perform futile hard labor in a lime quarry, the prisoners refused to be broken, far from being diminished. Mandela's moral leadership and stature continued to grow while he was in prison. His young wife, Winnie, continued to be an inspiration to the struggle.
0: That day is not far when it shall lead you to freedom.
2: Amanza! Amanza! Amanza away to Power to the people. But the struggle against apartheid would continue for another quarter century. While Nelson Mandela and his co-accused served life sentences on Robben Island, other leaders of all races and in all spheres campaigned for change. Many faced imprisonment or exile. And around the world, ordinary people showed their horror of apartheid and their support for the struggle.
8: The purpose, friends, of this virus is for the people of Britain to register on the widest possible scale their passionate protest against an evil and repulsive doctrine which says that a man's legal status, a man's political rights, a man's economic opportunities, a man's social position shall depend Solely upon the color of his skin.
2: But in 1976, Soweto school children marched in protest and townships around the country erupted in violence. It was the beginning of the end for apartheid, but the struggle dragged on for more than a decade as the African nationalist government clung to power.
6: I've been here don't push us too
2: far in the late 1980s amid a tide of world pressure the South African government was forced to accept the inevitable and began dismantling apartheid
0: in 1990
2: At the age of 71, Mandela was released unconditionally.
9: I stand here before
6: you, not as a prophet, But as a humble servant of you, the people, a place, the remaining years of my life, in your hands.
2: After leading negotiations for a new South Africa, Nelson Mandela cast his vote in the first free and democratic elections and became the country's first black president.
6: never, never, And never again shall it be that this beautiful love will again experience the oppression of one by another.
2: For the duration of his presidential term and throughout what should have been a well earned retirement, he has worked tirelessly to entrench the ideals he has so long stood for, becoming universally revered as an icon of leadership and humanity.
6: When I told one of my advisors a few months ago that I wanted to retire, he growled at me. Coach, you are retired (laughs) if that is really the case then I should say I now announce that I'm retiring from retirement
2: (laughs) but in his retirement from retirement Nelson Mandela has continued to give his support and generosity in countless ways creating an enduring legacy through the Nelson Mandela Foundation, the Nelson Mandela Children's Fund, the Mandela Rose Foundation, the Nelson Mandela Institute for Education and Rural Development, and the 46664 Campaign. Through 4664, he continues to lend the full force of his extraordinary talent, intellect, and heart to a problem that faces not only his own country, but the world at large, Nelson Mandela, Madiba, we salute you.
5: Thank you for being with us. This is Our Common Ground. We want to note that one of the things that is glaring as African Americans in this country um, look back at our history uh, intertwined in the history of the struggle for uh, freedom and justice in South Africa, that there are many, many similarities both uh, pre and post apartheid that we share. But one of the things we want to look at at our common ground tonight is why we identify. This is a very um, personal uh, story as we look at the legacy, the revolutionary legacy of um, Nelson Mandela tonight for me. Uh, It was in 1969 that I became involved in a group which was the first African-American group of people to organize around freeing Nelson Mandela and working on the issue of anti-apartheid. In 1970, uh, I was assigned by Polaroid Corporation to lead a contingency of black employees who had approached the corporation around the issue of divestment. At the time, Polaroid Corporation was one of the most progressive um, human resource-managed companies in the country, and the president uh, and founder of Polaroid felt that it was important to go look at the Polaroid operation in South Africa and make decisions about how the company could support the struggle of South Africans for freedom and justice and specifically at the issue of the captured and imprisoned representatives and leadership of the ANC and Spear of the nation. I was honored to have served in that capacity and it was in nineteen seventy, sitting in the offices of Polaroid Corporation where a member of the management team who was HOSA, told me the story of the leadership of Nelson Mandela. And from 1970 until Nelson Mandela walked out of the gate of Robbins Island Prison, I was a serving member of the Free Mandela Commission and um, Trans-Africa. And uh, so this is, uh, 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 it, it serves to show us the ambiguity that oppression places on an individual, wanting on one hand to honor the revolutionary self of Nelson Mandela and doing so, and at the same time looking at uh, another committee that I have served on for the past five years of inquiry into comprehensive social security systems for South Africans, uh, which has found that 55% of all South Africans live in poverty. And that in 2002, the committee, as we went into various rural areas in the country, estimated that 11 million children between birth and 18 years were living in dire poverty in South Africa on less than 200 rand per capita per month. I um, attended the um, elections, the first free elections of the South African country, uh, the country of South Africa, uh, especially interested in the Uh, participation and the role that black workers played in putting together the polls. And now look back at 71% of white South Africans have at least a high school education, but only 22% of blacks have finished high school and only 18% of black households have running water, while 87% of white households do. So we have to ask the question, what role? truth plays in this, uh, that we have to, I mean, it, it, if, 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 if you're following me, you, you begin to understand that Nelson Mandela, Madiba was a revolutionary warrior in one era of his life. He became a statesperson, a statesman in trying to put together and hold together a torn country as he exited from robbins island prison and then he became president which made him a politician now look at the parallel i ask you for a moment of what has happened in our own country we're a community organizer who whose world in, in, uh, encompassed helping poor people in the inner city with his legal skills with his ability to muster and organize resources looking at housing and socioeconomic issues rose to be the first African American president of this country and the bifurcated and ambiguous way in which, as African Americans, we have to deal with him, a community organizer becoming the president who is a politician. Before we bring on uh, our guest tonight, Dr. Tommy Curry, to help me bring all of this together, one of the things that we have to be very wary worry about in telling the story of Nelson Mandela and telling the story of a Barack Obama, in telling the story of a Martin Luther King and telling the story of a Malcolm X, is that truth is the power. And so uh, I invited our friend Margaret Kimberly to be with us to, tonight, and she could not, and I have uh, an audio clip of some comments that are so wise, but brings this whole story together for us.
10: Uh, well, you know, we have to. We can't talk about Nelson Mandela with, without talking about the, the very heroic acts that he participated in uh, in the fifties and early sixties uh, in South Africa. Uh, founder of the youth wing of the ANC, uh, an attorney, um, uh, a man who uh, embodied the, the freedom struggle who, um, uh, to, to millions of people around the world. And for most of my life, he was this figure imprisoned. And then, you know, since he passed, I've been thinking about my youth in the uh, late 70s, and the 80s. And uh, the anti-apartheid movement was an international movement, which, of course, was very, very important to black people here in this country. And Nelson Mandela took on this uh, almost mythical status, Uh, this man who had been uh, behind bars for uh, almost as long as I had been alive at that time. Uh, So he was, and he was beloved, including by me. And I remember when uh, he came to New York in 1990, uh, at, to great uh, acclaim, and it's something that I can never forget. Uh, so it is, it is hard to, uh, I, I suppose it's like loving somebody and then you don't <laughs> love them so much anymore, but when he became president, we have to acknowledge what happened. Uh, the decisions that he and the ANC made uh, after, at, actually before he was released, uh, there was deal-making going on when he... Um, I uh, was moved from Robben Island to another prison. Um, the apartheid regime knew it was on its last legs. It had been uh, proven that it uh, was not militarily superior. And we have to thank the Cubans for that and the uh, Angolans who uh, uh, brought the South African army nearly to defeat. And it became clear to them that uh, they could not continue business as usual. And these are things actually I did not know until very recently. Uh, that these uh, um, he was part of the discussions that freed him. Um, I don't want to blame somebody who wants to be out of jail after 27 years, but I, I think we have to we do have to talk about that. And some of his former comrades have been quite forthright about um, uh, errors in judgment uh, that were made at the time of the transition to majority rule. Uh, the Freedom Charter, which uh, uh, Mandela was one of the authors of the Freedom Charter, which called for the nationalization of South Africa's great minimal, mineral wealth, the gold the, uh, and the diamonds, uh, called for a uh, redistribution of wealth, called for a, for reparations, for the return of the land that was taken from African peoples when uh, uh, Europeans, when the, the Dutch and the British uh, arrived in South Africa, and that was given up and it was given up uh, because people thought that they could not stand up to the rest of the world. Um, Mandela and and others were uh, members of the South African Communist Party. Uh, The Soviet Union, however, had collapsed. Uh, They believed they did not have a powerful ally and that these compromises had to be made. Uh, The result has been that poverty for most black South Africans, is as bad, if not worse, now than it was uh, in the early 90s when uh, this era of such great hope finally arrived. So it's, you know, it's complicated. We're all complicated as human beings, and history is complicated. But I, I don't think that uh, we should just uh, remember the man who was behind bars and shut up uh, about the decisions that he and others made which uh, were clearly mistaken and which have uh, resulted in great suffering, the continuation of great suffering for the masses of black people in South
1: Africa. In his book about his experiences working with the ANC and the Incontable Seasway, uh, uh, Frank Wilderson writes in his book Incognito about a story uh, that, uh, he experienced working in South Africa in the, the mid to late 80s and talking with some folks highly involved in the struggle down there, some young, young men and women in, at this one point in time, and saying to them that in, at that time that he, and he, at great risk actually to his own personal safety, that he thought that the best thing, unfortunately, that the best thing that could happen, uh, for Mandela and the struggle would be that Mandela, uh, not be freed, that he die in prison, uh, and his point was that once he becomes free, that he would uh, uh, more than likely end up taking these kinds of positions that would weaken the broader liberation struggle, and of course, at that time, it was hard for anybody to hear something like that um, right. but but uh, as you even have written here, and I think you, you know in your piece that you said, I feel sad because the hideous hagiography has already begun, the sickening mantra that he meaning Mandela forgave white people as i pointed out in a recent black agenda report column black people are always lauded if they forgive white people if mandela didn't forgive white people for what they did so to uh, uh, what they did to south africa well who could blame him white people of course uh, white people of course but i digress <laughs> yes. right um, and then this leads me you know, s- sort of uh, in line with that and what Frank Wilderson had written, and then the piece you linked to in your piece to John Pilger, where he talks about the interview he did with Mandela, where yes. when questioning Mandela about the post-imprisonment changes, Mandela is quoted here as saying, you have to appreciate that every process incorporates a change. So linking all those together, and then even hearing on 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 for instance on, on French television this morning, one of the uh, uh, um, uh, leading figures in the ANC was on television saying that that in response to criticism about what has not been done for Black South Africans in particular, the person's response was. Uh, something to do, something to the effect, uh, dismissing it as, as the, you know trite criticism from the margins of society, and we don't have time to, to to dwell in those little trifling things. We need to focus on the great man that Mandela was, and the attempts at progress that the ANC continues to make. So I say all that to say, sort of the, to to frame a broad final sort of broad final question for you, uh, of of sort of summarize. What do you think is the best way for us to interpret? Nelson Mandela's life, and today's South Africa? And what would you like to see come uh, of, of, of this moment? Uh, is there something that we can use in this moment to advance the, the consciousness or the discussion, if not the full-blown struggle itself?
10: Well, I think we should uh, give credit where it, is, where it is due. As I, as I just said, he is uh, deserving of great honor and respect. But we always have to – I believe you can't go wrong if you tell the truth and um, um, the respect we have uh, for what he achieved and how bravely he fought um, in advocating the armed struggle to South Africa, which was uh, absolutely necessary, Uh, that cannot be forgotten, and that's what we should remember him for. Um, You know, one of the things that's making me not just sad but frankly angry is this picture of him as being this man who just forgave, he forgave, he forgave, um he didn't kill white people. Well, you know, I don't I don't know if he in his mind and heart forgave anybody, but forgiveness is overrated, especially when it comes to black people anywhere on the uh on this earth and uh in relate our relations uh to white people. And we have to be very careful when uh I get very nervous when I hear about how forgiving a black person is and I, I wrote a month or so ago about that some uh Uh, police brutality cases where family members were forgiving of people who killed uh, their children and and so forth. But it's something black people are conditioned to do. So um, that's not the reason to admire Mandela. You admire him because of the Freedom Charter. You admire him because he was willing uh, to undertake and did uh, begin uh, uh, an armed struggle uh, against the apartheid regime. So those are the reasons to admire and respect him, not that he was... Uh, some uh, uh, you know lightweight grandfatherly figure who who just said, "I forgive," and you know taking on this mystical you know it sounds like something Oprah created um, but so that's not the reason to to respect him. We respect him for um, the acts he took to fight against one of uh, history's worst injustices but and we tell that truth and then we tell the truth the post-apartheid truth, which is not pretty, uh, of a a country now that has some rich black people but the vast masses still living in squalor, and a regime which, um, you know, the Sharpeville massacre in the early 60s galvanized the world, uh, world opinion against South Africa when striking miners were shot and killed. Well, last year, striking miners were shot and killed, this time by black police, in uh, a, a country ostensibly ruled by black people. And uh, so that is a truth that has to be told as well. And I guess I can just sum up that way. Just tell the truth. Uh, and we, then we can discuss how we feel about it or our, uh, our anger or our sadness about it. But you can't do that honestly if we, if we don't uh, lay it all on the line.
5: And we thank uh, our common ground voice, Jared Bell, for allowing us to use this uh, interview and these sage words uh, from Margaret Kimberly, who wrote them on her bo- blog, uh, face, um, blog space, uh, The Freedom Writer. And you can find it at freedomwriter.blogspot.com. I'll post it in our chat room. And for those of you who are listening, you can join us in our chat room at Blog Talk Radio. Dot com backslash OCG. And we're going to um, thank um, Jared Berry and Margaret Kimberly again. Dr. Tommy J. Curry, thank you so much for joining us again at Our Common oh, Ground. Thank you. How are you, my brother?
9: I'm good, I'm good. How are you doing today?
5: Well, you know, on this Mandela thing, Nelson Mandela's life and the struggle of the ANC and Spear of the Nation was so much a part of the fabric of who I was for so many years. Um, and I have been so concerned about what the deg- the deterioration of life for South African blacks uh, for many years. Uh, I mean, there is most people are thinking that somehow... South African blacks are freed and apartheid is over, but it really isn't over. And at the death and the, during the illness of uh, Nelson Mandela, um, I, I I've just been really really concerned. And upon his death on on Thursday on Wednesday, um, I'm feeling a a sense of sadness, a sense of loss of both what was and what could have been. What was your response to um, how the media has has approached this? I mean, I, I just shut the TV off Wednesday night. I just right. I, I couldn't do it. Yeah, I, I, mean, had I think with comrades and yeah. and and continued to watch four seasons of Battlestar Galactica for the fifth time. <laughs> <laughs> So what was your response, uh, Dr. Curry, and what do you think is happening uh, in this country? And I, I talked about the distinct uh, similarities between where we are in this country and where the, pe- uh, the black people of South Africa are and the political scene, because, you know, there's this uh, battle between the right and um, the black people of uh, South Africa. Same kind of attack, same kind of battle that we're facing in this country.
9: All right, all right. Well, I mean, my first reaction, of course, is, uh, you know, my expectation that it was going to be a kingification of Mandela, right? I mean, you know, for 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 things you see my Facebook post, I mean, the immediate the reaction is that we understand how the West has historically uh, pigeonholed, you know, our leaders have historically pigeonholed their thought and made them into these very... Uh, conciliatory, you know, where, where they're focused on reconciliation and, you know, as, uh, as uh, Kimberly was talking about, the, the real issue here is how the West is going to try to use him as a symbol for success, right, that he's been a recognized leader, that this shows that dialogue, discourse, patience, that these are the weapons against racism, and that the periods of time where he was allegedly a terrorist, where he did embrace violence, uh, shows that in many ways that punishment, even though unjust, was necessary for us to get to this place that we're that we're at now. I mean, the story that we're that we're going—it's the same story we get with King, right? That you know he went right. to Birmingham jail, he was fighting, he was protesting, but at no point did he lift his finger against the white regime. And even though he died and became a victim of it, we're better off for it because now we've saw, allegedly solved saw the problem of racism. I think that when we look at the media and the propaganda, we have to be very careful about how we, we start interpreting and terrorizing these symbols. Uh, you know, as I said last time, I think this is the same issue we have with Obama. And when someone like Obama gets up and makes a statement that uh, Nelson Mandela is an inspiration to him and was one of the people that inspired him to, you know, seek out being the president of the United States, that we should really pay attention to something like that not only in the sensibility that we think Obama somehow represents progress for black people, but in terms of a neocolonial and neoliberal state, what does it mean for a black person like Obama, who's clearly made deals with capitalism, Wall Street, etc., uh, the kind of oligarchs that are, are willing to wage class warfare as well as fund military warfare against darker races around the world, and Nelson Mandela, who at one time embraced and understood, much like Fanon, that apartheid and white supremacy was in and of itself violent, and that violence would have to be met with violence, uh, who comes out of prison, as you say, as a politician, as a presidential candidate that sees capitalism, that sees uh, certain deals and um, economic agendas being in the forefront rather than a fundamental systemic change that overrides material conditions like poverty, uh, like suffering, etc. So I think that you know, the way that we parallel these things, the way the media spins these things has to be really looked at uh, critically. I see the mistake that happened almost immediately after he died. You saw all of our uh, public intellectuals, our, our, I call them the Facebook or for-profit revolutionaries, uh, jumping on and talking about how great of a man uh, Mandela was. I don't think anyone can take anything away from what he did and what he dedicated his life to. I think he's certainly that kind of figure for African descent people. But there's lots of figures, uh, like Biko, for example, who was killed by the same regime, that didn't didn't live long enough to be made uh, a national symbol. It was rather erased from, you know, the periods of history except for those people that read him and keep him alive in terms of his revolutionary struggle. So when the media hones on to a black person, when the media embraces a black person, when they reduce them down to snippets, like he realized that he had to give up his hate and bitterness or he would still remain in prison, like when we get those kind of ideological moralizations of a person's thought and the way they encounter the world, especially something as harsh as apartheid of white supremacy, uh, we should immediately become distrustful. Because if we try to liken physical imprisonment, apartheid, segregation, death, rape, murder, if these things become just as worse as our, or just as bad as our moral thoughts, then we're in a real problem in terms of how we've allowed white people and white society and white supremacy to control the way that we actually define ourselves and define the material conditions of our imprisonment. So when you look at the condition of people in South Africa, when you look at the condition of african descended people in the United States, even under a black president, you have to ask yourself, what about this has changed? If the Mm -hmm. the question of the issue is progress, then don't we measure progress in the materialization of a better quality of life for those people who are actually oppressed? Or do we measure it by how symbols speak about it? And I think that's one of the great tensions that we're going to have to deal with, right? It's the tensions that we're going to have to live with, that every time we lose one of our ancestors, uh, they become reduced down to, uh, you know, pin quotes and fluffy feelings for their oppressor, and we celebrate that. Right. I mean, I think in this case, I think, uh, I mean, I'm I'm skeptical. I'm I'm pessimistic if this happens. I'm doubtful if it'll happen. But I think in this case, one of the things we should do, especially academics, is try to hold on and actually write about the parallels between the story that we're getting from Mandela after his death and the way that all of our civil rights heroes, people like King, people like X, have either been demonized or praised for the same uh, ability of them to embrace reconciliation or the forgiveness of whites.
5: Mm-hmm. One of the things as an activist, um, Tommy, that I'm always looking at is trying to help people, especially on this broadcast, to understand the differences between roles that we take on as struggleists and as, as activists. That a, a politician's job, a government worker's job, is not to be an activist. An activist is for the people, which is why I still get goosebumps when I I hear the cry "Amandla, a way to," because we we understood at the time of this uh, of 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 this struggle the struggle in South Africa uh, to free Mandela and to eliminate apartheid uh, in South Africa. We saw it in the Civil Rights Movement and the Black Power Movement in this mm-hmm. country. It really is about understanding what power to the people really means.
9: Absolutely.
5: Where a revolutionary stands is not the same place where a politician stands. And one of the things people get mad with, with um, Playfell Benjamin when Playfell Benjamin says, that politics is the art of the possible, and in that compromise and capitulation is a natural instinct to make the bad, to make the boogeyman go away. Mm -hmm. And so what we hear in these speeches are the things that should inspire the people to take on the power and responsibility that they have of Lifting oppression from themselves because it's not coming out of the White House, and it certainly is not coming out of the part uh, of the Parliament of the of South Africa. Mm. One of the things that uh, always comes to mind for me, and I, I attended uh, the inauguration of Nelson Mandela, and at the time had the sentimentality walking around uh, I spent 3 weeks in 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 Cape Town uh after the inauguration and I was thinking oh wow I could live here I could teach at the University of Cape Town and this would be great but then I have to go back and I have to think about the 1985 speech that Botha made in front of uh in the south african newspaper um in in a, in a in a in a in a in a in a speech to the cabinet uh the south african parliamentary cabinet where he says that Pretoria has been made by the white mind for the white man that's a quote mhm And he said, we have demonstrated that to the blacks in a thousand and one ways, the Republic of South Africa that we know of today has not been created by wishful thinking. He said that. We do not Mm -hmm. pretend like other whites that we like blacks. That was in 1985.
7: Right.
5: August of 1985. So when when I recall that, I said, oh, hell no, I'm not living in, the, in Cape Town or Cape, anywhere. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm hightailing it back to the plantation that I know uh, and uh, ultimately is going to have to be the place where, I, I as Matthew Johnson would say, make my bones. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that, you know, we do appreciate the kind of, and one of the reasons I want to do this broadcast tonight the way that I'm doing it, is to really hone in on understanding that community organizers become politicians and revolutionaries become politicians. I mean, if you look at uh, uh, Rush or you look at some members of the leadership of the Black Panther Party and where they are now playing on the same field that they disdained when they were revolutionaries.
9: Right, right. We it's have a to of
5: Yes. Um, and I'm trying to think of um, Bobby Seale, mm-hmm. who is part of a great capitalist uh concept uh, called having my own business and making my own money. (laughs) Right,
0: right.
5: You know, so I think that one of the things that we do have to do in honoring Nelson Mandela is to look at what parts of his life. I mean, everybody has an era. Uh, and, and, And look at the ways in which people people sometimes people grow up and sometimes they grow down. And Absolutely. I think you know, I think some of these people um grow up grow grow down because they get in a system for which they really have no power. I mean, Nelson Mandela for instance, once he became president, um even Winnie Mandela was very, very critical of the way in which he affiliated himself uh with uh the corporate regime mm-hmm. that held together as a terrorist group the economy of South
9: Africa yeah um, i mean i mean this we we've seen this tragedy over and over again, right. You know, we, we've seen, you know, and, and I think that in, in Mandela's case, is especially powerful because even when he's working with the ANC back in the 40s and he gets into the youth league, his call is for activism, right? His call is for responsibility. Uh, and you see this even developing with, this, with the sphere, right, in the 1960s, which kind of parallels the, the revolutionary movements we had in the United States. I mean, you know, when Robert F. Williams says that he's turned to radical self-defense, it's from the same it's from the same purpose, from the same vein, Right that we've exhausted, you know, uh the the peaceful, the negotiating, the, the appeal to the to the rights and to the sense of moral consciousness of our oppressors. So then you see you see this growth. And I think that the problem with how we divide activists, revolutionaries, politicians, and I would add to that list, you know, uh, academics, right? Is that the way that we divide knowledge is that we, we suppose that it's ideological and it's categorical. but that I mean it's just that somebody woke up with this kind of morality. And we don't give credence to the intellectual and historical processes that uh, black people are going through and trying to figure out and deal with oppression. So then when we look at someone like Mandela, it becomes very easy for us to say, well, that's the bad Mandela, right, or that's the revolutionary Mandela, and then say and then compare that uh, to what he becomes without even taking any kind of note of what 27 years in prison, what 27 years of captivity does to the mind and to the personality and character of a political prisoner, right? Absolutely. I think that. That's what I mean when I say that I think that there's an irresponsibility in terms of how the West is perceiving the situation in South Africa. Is an irresponsibility in terms of how we've thought about George Jackson. Is an irresponsibility in terms of how we've thought about someone in exile like Robert F. Williams and his wife Mabel Williams. These types of things happen because they fit within the programmatic nature of how white supremacist regimes, about how neo-colonial apparatuses, or apparati rather, uh, want to confine the psychology and imagination of African-descended people. I mean it's a different conversation If black people understood Nelson Mandela Next to people like Fanon Or next to Biko Or next to uh, Anton um, Limbidi, right? If we had these conversations That understood the intellectual fight As well as the cultural and political fight That these african descended people are waging across the world Then we have a much better handle A much better grasp in the context that we're trying to hold on to But now we just divide it up into people It's like oh well we know he was a great leader We know that he was about reconciliation We know what the you know TRC The Truth of Reconciliation uh, committees were about in South Africa, and we make him a part of that, and we celebrate that part. But then we demonize, we try to distance ourselves, or we we use it for you know the very brief token moment that oh, we know Mandela at some point was radical uh, when he in the 1960s when he's in hiding he's you know with the MK. So if we don't if we don't contextualize as you're saying, if we don't contextualize the role of the politician, the activist, the revolutionary, and then the people who write about these folks uh they get lost, their lives get lost and it gets reduced okay. down to things to categories that we understand. The the problem, you know, as I was saying and what I fear, is that seeing these kind of popular and public intellectuals doing this work on uh, Mandela and you know trying to figure out, well, how does this work, why should we care, why is he a high-bed issue now, is that they're doing it for recognition. In other words, they're doing it in ways that coalesce or that uh, converge with their with their predetermined ideas. So they'll emphasize radicality for one second, or they'll emphasize uh, you know reconciliation or faith or hope or discourse in the other. At the same time, none of those recognitions say anything about did he, his life changed the lives changed the poverty changed the violence changed the suffering of people are in south africa and this is the same problem i have when we interpret somebody like king we give them symbols we give them monuments we give them praise we give them holidays then you ask yourself are black people safer are black people better are black people less poor mandela falls into that same category because even even before even before we've had a chance to react Right To what people are saying to, about Mandela, before we have a chance to even historicize his life, why right, talk about these patterns where he was with the ANC Youth League and who influenced them, and then what grows out of that, or even the distrust of the 1950s that they had uh, with white liberals and white radicals and the Congress of the Democrats, before we get to any of the history about Mandela or the history of you know South Africa or black consciousness or black nationalism in South Africa, the Western media is already telling us, you should value him because of this he 's a noble peace Prize winner. reconciliation is the way. That's an anti-intellectual and anti historical rendering of how we appreciate the life of, of our ancestors, because mm-hmm. it doesn't give credence to what they fought for or their intellectual development. We've already seen reactions from the GOP. We've seen reactions from the Republicans where they're saying we still viewed him as a terrorist. And now we see, oh, well, he was on the terrorist list, you know, uh, until 2008. Yeah, but why? What, what basis? Why did, why did that happen? And those are not the questions that most of us are asking. Most of us are not asking the questions about why he was still considered a terrorist, or even even though he was considered a terrorist, how was he in bed with corporatism and neoliberalism? Neo, neo- Those are not the types of questions that we're asking about Mandela. Right now, we want recognition for mourning. I think that, that sometimes, I'm not saying that it's inappropriate. I'm just saying that I think sometimes it overrides our ability to make genuine interventions into what's actually going on with him. And what actually went on with his life, and furthermore, and this is the most important part: how are black Americans who largely see themselves as American and cut off from the rest of the African diaspora, are going to interpret his symbolism, and who is that going to benefit other African descended people or their own battle for recognition within academies, trying to you know fit into kind of liberal and neoliberal slash you know European ideas of what it means to actually reconcile with your oppressor.
5: That's a, I think you know, that's a,
9: that part is very dangerous.
5: It, it, it's very important, and, and I have been asking for almost two months on this show, at the end of every broadcast, what is your end game? Mm-hmm. And I think that we, do, we have to examine what's the end game. We have to examine how we transpose and translate these conceptual ideas about justice and freedom In our lives, you know, um, back in 1984, Randall Robinson called me and asked me if I could come to DC because they were going to go into the offices of the U.S. South African um, Embassy and take over the building or do something silly. And I said, "Well, what's going to happen? What are you going to be asking for?" And and his aunts and 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 I think it was Ellen, Eleanor Norton Holmes, who had this thing and says, "We're going to refuse to leave until the South African regime dismantles apartheid and release all political prisoners." And I said, "Well, what's going to happen if it gets rough up in there?"
0: Mm-hmm.
5: And and they said, "Well, this is a direct action that is nonviolent." I said, "Wait a minute." We just had children gunned down in the streets in Soweto. And our strategy is to take nonviolent direct action as a tactical way of approaching the, um, the, the South African government. This is not good, folks. And I'm not traveling from Florida... Uh, to Washington, D.C., to go to jail just because. Because it is not going to help us uh, initialize uh, the free South Africa movement in the United Mm -hmm. States. So they went and did what they wanted to do. They went to jail, and that was the end of that even though there were sit-ins that took place in in dozens of uh, cities across the country. But one of the things I think that it is important for us to also remember is to look at Nelson Mandela's model as a revolutionary, and that is when this man, prior to his imprisonment, said it was something for which he was willing to die. Right. He meant that, and no, it's absolutely. called sacrifice. And my question is: in the end game, are you willing to make the sacrifice? And I'm asking that of people who are listening to this broadcast, because essentially, if you look at the statistics of poor black people in South Africa, under a regime that is changing increasingly toward uh, new oppression and only a few are getting the benefit of the post apartheid era what is the end game for for children if you look at the statistics of black south african children and the demographics of black american children how is it different
9: I don't, again, I don't think that it is. I mean, I think this is the difference between us understanding something like apartheid or, you know, the analogy uh, analogous to the United States would be something like segregation and then believing that once those things are eliminated that somehow that remedies things like poverty and discrimination, etc. And I think but that no, what we see... Know, that there
5: are a lot of uh, African Americans and blacks in this country who believe that somehow they are different from the people of South Africa. Under the regime uh where change where major changes really have have not happened, it's almost the same thing. They can go right. into public places, but the schools aren't better
9: um uh, well, the poverty's I mean, terrible the health the, yeah
5: let me but look you know is, you can it, go into to the Mississippi delta
9: mm-hmm.
5: and find the same kind of conditions that you find in some of the the inner city neighborhoods, right outside of uh, inside Johannesburg, and right outside of Johannesburg.
9: Yeah, well, I mean, but this is what the boys told us back in the 60s, right? They give Black Americans rights, they make them believe they're citizens. They're going to turn their back on the rest of Africa, right? This the process isn't new, right? The process isn't new, and the problem is that Black people in America largely see their fates as being separate than those of South Africa, Africa, and the rest of the place in the diaspora. I mean, this is the reality. Right. This is the reality that we believe somehow that our protests, our celebration of people like Obama, that our class privilege, or even though it's not really class privilege, but the fact that we're American and we're in the West somehow overrides our connection. Right. Mm-hmm. So the and, and again, I mean, we should take this very seriously. I think again, I think that we say this stuff tongue in cheek too many times that we do not understand. That if black people in South Africa, black people in Africa, black people in Cuba, black people in South America don't have the type of self-determination and independence that allows them to control their own face, their own economy, etc., then black people in America can certainly not celebrate that they have some kind of independence because they're simply a worker class in the United States, and if they can't make the parallels. And this, again, this is why I'm saying the intellectuals are fault because we don't make the parallels, and we don't make the parallels between a working class of black folk in America, a bourgeois that's really not a bourgeois that only gets money for what white people define as their industry, and can't understand poverty in South Africa or other places of Africa. That we don't understand white supremacy, we don't understand racism, and that's a huge conceptual flaw. Because even people like Martin Luther King understood that. He said the civil rights movement in America was part of a larger civil rights movement, our anti-colonial movement the world over. So it's not like we haven't had people. It's not like the people that we claim that we love and value haven't made the same connections. What we have to do is ask ourselves why. And that why question goes back to exactly what you're talking about. We want to perform revolution. So when you ask people, are you willing to die for this idea, the answer is going to be no. You ask an academic who's writing about race and racism, are you willing to die for this idea? The answer is going to be no, right? My answer is a little different because I see racism meaning that I could die at any point, right? That's the problem. The problem is that Black people can be extinguished at any point, the same way they did Biko, right? They captured him, they beat him upside the head, he died of an aneurysm, be under the same regime. So if life is extinguishable, if it's that contingent where people don't value it, where your oppressor doesn't value it, then the question you have to ask yourself is why are you exercising all of this energy in the performance of revolution, in the performance of trying to be radical? That does nothing, and it certainly doesn't establish any kind of connections or awareness about the mechanisms of of, uh, racism or oppression the world over. I mean, that's Jackson's point. You see, we keep isolating these people, and this is the same, again, what I'm saying – this is what we're doing with Mandela. We isolate these people to certain errors. I guarantee you, we're going to remember Mandela because of his reconciliation. That's what we're going to remember Mandela by. We're going to we're going to frame him based on the Nobel Peace Prize. We're going to frame him as a symbol in the hope and change of white folk. And the, and it's just like you know uh, the the interview you show with uh, Jared Ball, right? If you if you make a connection and say, well, look, if granted he did that, granted he gave his life, 95 years, that granted he gave his life for this cause. But what has it done? Besides (laughs) give us another symbol, right? And I'm not speaking flippantly of of him here, because I I think the man deserves great respect. But what has it done to materially change the economic and political conditions of African people in South Africa, similarly to the way that our people have been killed by the same governments, right? By the... he was captured, helped captured by the CIA, right? King was killed by the CIA. How is it possible that these same governments execute the same plans and we're in the same conditions in two different parts of the diaspora. Both okay. both suffering are having a history of segregation-slash-apartheid-slash-terrorism. You see, these are the types of, this is the type of historical honesty, right? This is why I really like the Ball interview. This is the type of historical honesty that's necessary for us to think about Mandela seriously. The same type of historical honesty necessary for us to think about King, because we're going to keep talking about doing stuff. If we're going to talk about being activists and our action does nothing, we need to start thinking about maybe we're, maybe we're not activists. Maybe we're inactive. Yeah. And we are yeah. and we don't do that, because we want to say pretty words, we want to talk about deconstruction, we want to come on and say, oh, great, man, or, you know, and, 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 and it's all programmed, right? The, the reactions we've had to Mandela are programmed. Oh, he's a great leader for peace. Oh, well, they overlook his radicality. Oh, he, you know, they forget about, you know, as president signing IMF loans and neoliberalism. Right? These are programmed responses, but I'm asking, where's the context? Right? Mm-hmm. You're giving, we're, we get description, but where's the context? What, if, as you're saying, what if there is no other way out? Like, how do we, how do we think about that? How, how do we think about oppression where there is no choice? Yeah. So when, when yeah. all those people got killed back in 61 and he was hiding from the government, why did he say violence is the only way? Why? Because moral consciousness had run out. But as an old man coming out of prison, as someone who's that, who, who has to deal with that kind of psychological burden and the reality of the world, do you have the same power, the same youth, to give your life for a cause that you know will only lead, lead, lead to other people being dire or other people put in prison like you were? Right? Now, I'm not saying you well, made it, the wrong choice. We're, we're human. We're fallible. But the question is, how do we deal with those options in a repressive system? And well, that's something think that, we that we don't take Well, I think one
5: of up. the things that we have to concentrate on is that one act can get us from A to H, Mm-hmm. but another act is going to have to get us from H to O.
0: Right, right. But that's Because not how we think I'm it. going to
5: have to take a break right now, but right. when I come back, I do want to share the 1961 interview before Nelson Mandela went into, was arrested, about what he said about armed resistance. Because that's something that... that the American and even international media will want us, will want us to eliminate as they define and frame who Nelson Mandela was. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Dr. Tommy J Curry. We're talking about Nelson Mandela, the revolutionary turned statesman, turned president and politician. I'm Janice Graham and we'll be right
0: back.
5: Tuned into our common ground tonight in tribute and remembrance of Nelson Mandela. Madiba, his life and revolutionary
0: self. <laughs> It's
5: Blanche,
3: Blanche, Blanche.
5: Premiering Monday, December 30th. Reason, resistance. And Blanche, Blanche. Blanche. Outside the
4: matrix. Ongoing dialogue, discussions, and guests to elevate you
5: to perform at our highest and greatest potentials. At TruthWorks Network, December 30th. Join Blanche with an exclamation point. Drilling down. Just damn. When injustice becomes law, resistance becomes duty. The hosting the best of Pushback Talk Radio.
2: The Alpha
5: Show, only at TruthWorks Network, Fridays, 10 p.m.
3: India Declare, real, raw, and right now.
5: Join India Declare, real, raw, and right now, Fridays and Saturdays. 11 a.m. It's the I Declare Friday and Saturday brunch. If you want your news real and your talk raw and right now, it's Friday and Saturday. India Declare at the I Declare brunch. Real, raw, and right now, India is live. Friday and Saturday morning, 11 a.m.
9: The I Declare Show with India Declare.
5: On Blog Talk Radio.
9: India Declare. Real. Raw and right
3: now.
7: So, uh, with Dr.
3: Matthew Where spirit
7: matters. Across the board, the reality of racism, the part it is playing in frustrating the aspirations of millions of black children all across this country through poverty, through inferior public schooling, through poor health care, etc., and recognize the part that racism plays in that. Or... or 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 we aren't. And if we aren't going to recognize it for them, then we're not going to make any excuses about policy failures in the White House either. If it ain't no excuses for them, it ain't no excuses for him. If they can can face the hell that they're catching and still be expected to succeed, then damn it, we expect to get a public option. And we expect to see some social justice. And we expect to see something done about the plight of the poor. Don't give it that the economy is too bad. You know why? Because We got no excuses. 'Cause we it's a zero sum game, we believe
5: Spirit Matters. Live, common, riveting, top Only on TruthWorks Network. Your Wednesdays just got better. Soul of Fire with Dr. Matthew V. Johnson. Wednesdays, 10 p.m., where Spirit Matters. <phone rings>
0: This is our common
5: ground, transforming truth power, one broadcast at a time. Thank you for being with us. Join us each Saturday, 10 p.m. And thank you for being with us again, Uh, especially all of our chatters in our chat room. Uh, Join us on Facebook and Twitter. Um, And we are here each Saturday, 10 p.m. Our guest tonight, Dr. Tommy J. Curry. He is the professor of philosophy at Texas A&M University. Tommy, again, thanks for, for joining us once again, before we went on break, one of the things I wanted to do is to present this contrast that we've been talking about uh, in regard to uh, Nelson Mandela and, and share a 1961 interview that he did uh, in uh, prior to his imprisonment, because I think it is important for people to understand uh, that uh, becoming in, in leadership it is a process, uh, and some leaders will get us from one point to the next, and that is why it is important for us to understand the in game mm-hmm. to understand the players, the character and how the character of the, the leadership Is formulated, is transformed, and how it gets translated in the public discourse. This is uh, Nelson Mandela in
6: 1961. Mm -hmm.
8: Up to now, African nationalism has only made itself felt in campaigns of non-cooperation. Where there have been riots in locations like these, they've generally been caused by bad conditions. Two days before South Africa became a republic, a stairway strike was organized throughout the country in protest. But most Africans went to work. Ten thousand of them were arrested before the strike began. The army was fully mobilized, and an African knows he can be jailed for three years if he dares to strike. I went to see the man who organized this stayaway, a 42-year-old African lawyer, Nelson Mandela, the most dynamic leader in South Africa today. The police were hunting for him at the time, but African nationalists had arranged for me to meet him at his hideout. He is still underground. This is Mandela's first television interview. I asked him what it was that the African really
6: wanted. The Africans require, want the franchise on the basis of one man, one vote. They want political independence.
8: Do you see Africans being able to develop in this country without the European being pushed out?
6: We have made it very clear in our policy that uh, South Africa is a country of many races. There is room for all the various races in this country.
8: Are there many educated Africans inside Africa?
6: Yes.
2: We have a large
6: number of uh, Africans who are educated and who are taking part in the political struggles of the African people.
2: The, the question, question of, education, of the has education has nothing to, to do with it, the
6: question of the, the vote. The, on numerous occasions, uh, it has been proved in history that uh, people can enjoy the vote even if they have no education. Of course, we desire education, and we think it's a good thing. But uh, you don't have to have education in order to know that uh, you want certain fundamental rights, you have got aspirations, you have got uh, claims. it has nothing to do with education whatsoever.
8: Are you planning any more campaigns of
6: non-cooperation? Yes. The Peter Mathersberg resolution makes provision for a campaign of non-cooperation with the government, and we are presently studying plans to implement uh, this aspect of the resolution.
8: Now, if Dr. Wehrwold's government doesn't give you the kind of concessions that you want, sometime soon... Is there any likelihood of violence?
6: There are many people who feel that uh, the reaction of the government to our stay at home, ordering a general mobilization, arming the white community, arresting 10,000 of Africans, the show of force throughout the country. Notwithstanding our clear declaration that this campaign is being run on peaceful, and non-violent lines close the chapter as far as our methods of political struggle are concerned. There are many people who feel that it is useless and free- futile for us to continue talking peace and non-violence against a government whose reply is only savage attacks on an unarmed, defenseless people. And I think the time has come for us to consider in the light of our experiences in this day at home whether the methods which we have applied so far are adequate.
5: And Tommy, uh, and and for our audience, uh, this interview really shows that here was a man who was who was leading this revolution, this transformation, and he believed that armed resistance was the only action. Mm -hmm. And when he came out of Robbins Island, um, you know, the day that he was released, uh, there were uh, about ten... Black talk radio shows, major talk radio shows in this country. Um, Kathy Hughes at Radio One, Bob Law at LIB. Um, many of us organized to do a release um, a tribute. Um, on that day and I, I, I remember we we all went on the air and at noon exactly noon we were all playing a piece of that interview and uh, the um, South African National Anthem and a song that had been written by Stevie Wonder uh, called uh, Mandela along with uh, Nina, uh, Nina Simone and uh Miriam Barak uh, Makiba, who we will uh, play that piece later on in this broadcast, but it was clear that at that point he understood that mm-hmm. we have never had any respect for understanding the bottom line to resistance in this country, in the way in which he expressed it, and this was a man he was he was being hunted down by the. Sea, by the South African government, but the CIA was leading the uh, the hunt, and right. I think it was um, three days after that interview is when he was arrested. And we have to keep in mind that the trial was a four year four year deal. Mm. <laughs> I, just, I can't even imagine the trial going on for four years, but but that's the way it was. But One of the things that I try to imbue to people is that freedom, you you have to have a sense of what freedom and justice means. These are not just words and concepts and some esoteric, sentimental uh, sentimental thought, that you have to have an idea. And we haven't even embraced that around the issue of black children, black elders starving.
9: No, no. And I mean, and, and we've and we divided society up in a way that I don't think that we'll get back to that, right? I mean, one of the things that, you know, because I do a lot of work on um, you know, what I call anti-ethics or revolutionary violence, and one of the things that you realize in these thinkers is that these people, these intellectuals, these activists these revolutionaries were not... Uh, isolated, ideological, you know, thinkers, right? They didn't. They just didn't insist on violence as the only way. They understood it after other means have been exhausted. They understood it because of the types of repression you get out of apartheid or segregation or slavery, et cetera, right? And I think that one of the things that happens, and, you know, I had a conversation on Facebook about this today, one of the things that happens is that people want to condemn uh, revolutionary violence as a product of ignorance, Uh, whereas reconciliation is a product of enlightenment. So especially when you're talking about black people, right, and this is very dangerous, especially when you talk about black people, black people are only rewarded, recognized, and respected by the extent to which they uh, forgive, you know, their white oppressor, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas if you have, but you celebrate, and this is very important, we celebrate all types of violence when it comes to the the protection or the expansion of uh, Western imperial societies, So you have people that are divided on the war, but you have people that support it. You have people that are divided – on various aspects of American history. But by and large, people think that, you know, genocide and the slaughter of indigenous peoples or the French War or Revolution, et cetera, were necessary things to happen because we have this great country here. But when you imbue the same type of thing with black people, if you start from Haiti going forward, or you start with revolutionary thinkers like Fanon, or you start with, you know, I think I think Robert F. Williams is a perfect example next to Mandela given how close they were. I mean, Negro with guns came out in 62, and here you have this speech with him talking about the need for uh, the MK doing uh, armed resistance, you know, strategic bombings, etc. In '61, you you have black people looking at the structure and repressive system the world over and saying, "Look, we have exhausted for 200 plus years. We have exhausted every political and moral option we have. They are not responding." Right? This is George Jackson talking about the ignorance of King, that he's a great man, but he didn't understand the violence of the times. Right? So you mm-hmm. knew what his end was going to be. So we have these people, and then we don't afford them intellect when they have to, when they respond with violence, or when they say that the people must respond with violence. And I think it sets up a very dangerous calculus, because, see, when you tell people that the only way that you can survive, the only moral thing to do is to reconcile or be nonviolent, then what you, in fact, do is accept that the lives of African-descended people, the lives of black people, are fundamentally worth less than the lives of the white people that you ultimately want to protect. Because in those moments of nonviolence in this type of repressive system, you're inevitably saying that the moral character of the black people even when they die is comparable to the lives of the white people who are still aiming to kill them, and i find that to be a deplorable moral, moral calculus
5: there because are two things look... that come up for me as as you talk about this and one mm-hmm. is that the lack of respect as Afri- as black people in this country that we have for political prisoners in our own prison oh, absolutely. Leonard here, uh comes to mind um, uh, uh, I can't think of his name right now but uh, he was out of pri- out of prison for three years for three days after being in prison for twenty four years for the mm-hmm. Angola, of the Angola Five, and died. And we had no respect, simply no. because we buy the idea that these people don't look like us. They have no connection to us, mm-hmm. and therefore they are not part of our stream of
9: interest. Right. Right, because we define the stream of interest as being the model of the ideal citizen. Right, I mean mm-hmm. this is this is in fact the danger of Obama. I mean this is Walter Rodney. Right, this is this is what he understood that when we understand revolution as a bourgeois. Conversation with politics or economics. In other words, you have certain classes of black people that make it, and they separate themselves from the other classes, where they become the ones that deserve their natural rights like freedom and justice and equality, and everyone else doesn't. Then you inevitably are going to end up in a situation where you have people where you just don't connect to people. Yeah. You don't yeah. connect to them. And yeah. I mean, That's look, I mean, before. Yep. I'm sorry. Go go no, I was just going to say, look, before we even before we even made Trayvon Trayvon. We didn't connect with that because there were certain classes of black people who were just fundamentally uninterested in the assumptions they made about another poor black man being killed. The same Mm -hmm. way that we don't see the poor people in South Africa or the poor people in any of the majority uh, of of African descent in any of these countries uh, as part of our struggle. We see ourselves making it as citizens and then them being in the poor third world. And I think it's a very dangerous, dangerous perspective to have, especially when people talk about wanting to study race or wanting to study black people or claiming that they have a real understanding of white supremacy. If it's localized to America and it's based on these bourgeois ideas of our Western citizenship and their African or barbaric poverty, it does not fit with the way that black people have understood or even an accurate way for us to understand neocolonial models of oppression despite the passion of apartheid or segregation.
5: Yeah. Um, and, the, and the way in which we seem to cling to um, wanting to be like Oprah, who is an anomaly, or oh, J.P., yeah. who is an anomaly. Or, you know, we wanted to revere Jesse Jackson Jr. and uh, the former mayor of Detroit, whose name I can't recall, who's in prison. Mm. Now, where are we? We allow ourselves to be in a place where we come up empty. Let's go to our phones. 954, you're on the air with Dr. Tommy J. Curry. Thank you for your call. I respect you.
7: And hold uh, up, sister, and
5: how about it, Ghani?
7: You know, Dr. Uh, Curry, you yes, really sir. caught me on the last part of what you just said because, um, number one, this country has the audacity to try to respect uh, Nelson Mandela, you know, and I'm not a total fan of Barack Obama either, but I want the brother to walk out of the White House in one piece. You understand? Yes, yes. What you entail, and I'm glad Sister CEO allowed me to get in on this time, that um, the hypocrisy the lies, the deception, the problem and all of that. You cannot speak truth to power, and you're going to have our people and our children fight these wars and uh, tell them that they're upholding this Christianity, uh, democracy, all this bovine excrement, and have them go over there and support this nonsense, right? hmm Absolutely. Ain't no truth to power is being spoken, man. But the deal is, is this: if you ain't gonna pick up a gun against the country, then you refuse to pick up a gun for this country. I'm living in Hawaii right now, brother, and the the, the, the hardships here. There's a sister over here that has a, a archaeological thing with the Bishop Museum, and Janice, I will share this with you later. Or you know in your little thing, facebook, Facebook, or whatever it is but um the thing is is that uh, Obama has done us no service, and it this is a wake up call because it's not just him this is a this is a wake up call for all politicians because we have no way of putting these cats into a um probationary period like unions do. If you can't produce within six months or three months in your tenure, you, you got to walk. Mm-hmm. You know we, we we don't have that. So later for Obama, and you know they they over here these Hawaiian people, man. When you deal with their history here, and the uh, uh, the bishop trust over here how they just linked these people from the 1800s it's the same deal the only thing they didn't do with these 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 folks over here brother is that they didn't lynch them cut their heads off and and lynch them like they did africans in in, in the south mm-hmm. and north america and that whole deal you know that's the well, only uh, difference but the same disparity and dislinction of these people is still the reality so now it's December 7th today in Hawaii, right? Senator O'Neill died December 17th. I was here last December. So I'm tying this in to all of us, to so all our people first.
5: Yeah. Okay, Rondae, well, thank you for your thoughts. Janet, um, please,
7: will you let me finish?
5: Well, wait you a know, long time. You, 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 yeah, I, I understand seconds. that, but I've got other callers. But you've made some good points.
7: All right, you know where I'm going with
5: this. So yep. if we
7: ain't going to not pick up a gun, then let's not pick up a gun for this goddamn country, period.
5: Okay, we got you. We're on the same page. One, one, one you're on the air. I respect you. Thank you with uh, Dr. Tommy J. Curry.
4: Greetings to you, Janice, and greetings to Dr. Curry. Am I on? You doing? Yes, you are. Yes. Hey, Sarah. Okay. Yeah, hey, hey Janice. and to um, hear from you. Um, you too, Janice. Uh, Janice, I'm glad that Dr. Curry has made, made these points because I got into it yesterday with these so-called liberal white callers, and I'm going to tell all of you black hosts for these regular shows that have white people listening and calling in, you don't want to call in after or before me because I'm going to slash you with my husband's straight razor. Do not call in and try and tell me nothing about being pacifist, about turning the other cheek because I'm going to cut you, and I'm going to cut you so you could bleed out like a hog because I'm sick of it. You know, this fool going to have the nerve to try and, and call in Janet and Dr. Curry and try and tell me that pacifism and turning the other cheek and being nonviolent is going to work. I said, well, how the hell can you be nonviolent with a bunch of people coming and invade your country, kill your people, steal your resources, sitting on their asses there and looking at you and don't intend to give nothing up And you going to tell me that being nonviolent and, and, turn, and trying to go along to get along as what's happening in South Africa is the way to go? You see, white people – worldwide, and I'm going I'm to make a blanket statement, and I'm putting all of, the, all of them in this doggone boat. They all benefit from it. I don't give a darn if they say that. They didn't do it because, to me, if you saying that only a small percentage of your people was the one going around doing this violence, why the hell didn't the damn majority come in and put a stop to it if you wanted to stop it? Y'all all got a benefit from it. That's why you never stopped it because, no, you're going to sit back on your behind because the CIA, they, they ratted him out. They gave up its position. They, um, the MI6 in the U.K., they also were in on it. The South African police was in on it. Nobody don't go around and tell these damn Jews who's going and dragging these old, raggedy people on their deathbed or life support system and dragging them to be tried for what they did to them in, in, in World War II. Nobody tell them that they need to stop. So why the hell are you trying to tell black people now that we need to stop or we need to put it behind us? It's always when it comes to black people and it comes to us having something to do with white people, they all want us to turn away and to forget it, to move on, put it in the past, and try to move. You can't put it in the goddamn past because my ancestors are crying out, telling me that it is not forgotten. What did, did this Steve is is It's unconscionable. Here, it is. They're this man in the hand. Let this man bleed out. Um, died in a rat cell. And then this student reconciliation, and I don't even want to talk about Winnie Mandela and what they did to their sister and demonize her and turn her into the angry black woman and, and you know, put her into this position, and then all of a sudden they're going to try and, and, and demonize her. I don't even want to go down that road. But these are the things that we have got to deal with, and we've got a damn right to be angry because this stuff is fresh. This stuff is less than 30 years ago. It is still going on in, um, in Asenia, and I'm going to call it by the doggone but, right there. You, you know, no it, it, South Africa.
5: I'm I'm glad you brought up Winnie Mandela. I interviewed Winnie Mandela the day before um, Nelson Mandela was uh, released from prison, and one of the questions I asked her was how she felt about having her husband back after 27 years, and her answer really surprised me. She said, I'm overjoyed for Nelson, but it's going to be difficult to be a proper African wife again and walk two paces behind my husband because of the process of being part, of becoming a leader for her.
0: Mm-hmm.
5: And that's what that's people right. need to understand. That's right. She, she held it That leaders
9: 27 grow years. up
5: and leaders grow down.
9: Absolutely. That's
4: right.
5: This, she, she
4: held it up for 27 years. She was the voice that pushed this movement, give it international. This woman did a year in solitary confinement. Her children were deprived of their mother. She, she was banished from our home. They did all kinds, you know, Janice, if you think about the things that these people did, where they systematically came in with trucks and removed people from their home, we have that same history here in the United States. Come in there in the dead of the morning, pack them up, and drag them out of, um, out of Johannesburg and put them into some distant place. Say, this is where you're going to live. They systematically removed them. Are you going to tell me that I need to forget that and to forgive that?
5: No, well, uh, you can't. You know, it's, it's like Margaret Kimberly said that we don't know, we, we will never know whether forgiveness was part of the senior character of Nelson Mandela. We do know. No,
4: saying,
5: we I'm do know the Nelson reconciliation do
4: home, did it. not work. It only worked for the white people, Janet. It only worked for them because here it is. They could walk in confess their crime, say what they did and got off scot free. PW Boter, um, FW the clerk, none of them testified. None of them did no no time. People who people who fought in the revolutionary struggle, black people, they are still rotting away in jail, um in these prisons right now. And the white well, people you know, did all this one the
5: thing, One of the things in both the speech in nineteen eighty five That he said was, give them guns and they will kill each other. They are good in nothing else but making noise, dancing, marrying many wives, and indulging in sex. This this is, quote, folks, let us all accept that the black man is a symbol of poverty, mental inferiority, laziness, and emotional incompetence. And then he went on to say, hence we have good reason to let them... All the Mandelas rot in prison, and I think we should be commended for having kept them alive in spite of what we have at hand with which to finish them off. And he said and announced a number of new strategies include, and he called it to destroy this black bug.
0: Mm. We
5: should now make use of the chemical weapon. Mm. Priority number one, we should not buy all means allow any more increases of the black population lest we be choked
10: very
4: soon. Ooh. You see, Janice, I'm gonna say this and get off um get off line. You see that is why this this stuff here that that is happening with, with, with what they're trying to rewrite this script and trying to put this um into this life, we can't let this stuff happen. We can I let mean, because you see all these white media they're converging in, um, into South Africa in a Let me correct myself into Azania
5: Yes, All these in the
4: presidents, these mm-hmm. four presidents heading on there to Azania to put on this show that they're putting on here, that they love this man. This man was still listed as a terrorist. He only came off that list about maybe 15, 10, 15 years ago. He came off that international terrorist list. Absolutely. So we cannot, we cannot forget it. We can never forgive it, never forgive them, never forget it. I don't give a damn who don't like it, who got relatives who are white. Y'all know where y'all can kiss where it don't shine. I don't care. <laughs> We've got an and, but no, it's
9: important.
1: Out. It's, it's you're, important. You're,
5: you're absolutely right. That's 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 speaking truth. And we we all need to get clear about what they are trying to. The, the great another great setup.
4: Yes, ma'am. I y'all. I going to mute myself. Thank you very much. Okay. For
5: so. Thank you, uh, Sarah. Good to hear from you. Good to hear from Aronde and thank you both for your for your calls. You see, Tommy, one of the things that I love about Sarah and Arande, when they call here,
9: mm-hmm.
5: they're not trying to put ties and, and and tinsel.
9: No, that was no, it was it was real commentary.
5: Yeah, you know? yeah, and I and um, I can appreciate that.
9: But you know, there's a I think one of the things that we overlook, you know, in our conversations about violence you know, uh, is that violence also keeps other people in check, right? I mean, so you think about the assassination of people like Red Hampton, right? You think about all our leaders being killed. You know, it it also sends a symbol. You know, when we're talking about revolutionaries versus politicians versus activists, right, it sends mm-hmm. a symbol about what your fate is going to be if you're going to be a black revolutionary. And, and I think that the problem is, is that when we analyze, and this is the, I, you know, I'm more than happy to blame academics. This is the academics' fault. Is that when we analyze violence within racial and oppressive systems, what we do not do is analyze how these systems are in fact set up to make people not want to revolt against them. So by us killing people like Fred Hampton, by us incarcerating people like Mandela, by them you know doing what they did to, to Winnie Mandela, yeah. by them killing yeah. you see by them killing, it shows us that this is not what you want to do. Right, yeah. And even in, our, even in our communities, because so many black men are incarcerated and our mothers and our women are taking care of our children, right? they're going to say, well, what's their job as mothers to keep these children alive? So there's going to be a way even in which the conditions of oppression are going to de-radicalize the population. You're killing mm-hmm. off the men. You're impoverishing the women. You know where they're still put on the brink. Where they still have to be mothers. They still have to function. So we can't overlook the ways in which the system is set up to take away the people who are giving their lives, i.e., our soldiers, etc. People like Mandela, but then also trying to systematically repress and oppress our women as well because of the ways that they have to deal with and try to keep children alive and exist in extreme poverty. You see, that, that's what I mean when I talk about us not doing the the work necessary to talk about oppression. We'll talk about our identities all day. We'll talk about what Mandela means all day. But what we don't talk about is how the system, his life, was set up in a way to de-radicalize, or at least the version that they're giving of his life is set up to de-radicalize other populations, other African-descended people that are still dealing with these very same issues. And we could talk, you know, and that's just an extremely important point because we haven't made the intellectual connection about how violence in itself is not only horrible and dehumanizing, but how it's set up to make sure that we don't ever challenge it and preserve certain types of regimes of suppression and repression. Yep.
5: Dr. Tommy J. Curry, thank you so much. Uh, Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. The Nationist is uh, the blog, uh, and you can follow Dr. Curry on Facebook, he also has some of his classes on Facebook and we try to learn each and every day from the brilliance of a scholar like Tommy J Curry. Thank you so no, very I much.
9: It. Thank you, ma'am. Okay.
5: Good night and thank you and thank you to all of our callers. Uh, the bottom line here folks is that sacrifice and commitment and clarity in the in game is just so very important to understand that there are people who come into our lives, who make a difference, and there is no doubt that the work that Madiba undertook as the leader of uh, Spear of the Nation was important to all of us. Thank you for being with us tonight. I'm Janice Graham, and every Saturday night, 10 p.m., we're transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And don't forget to check us out on TruthWorks Network. Sign up with us at Facebook and our various websites, and follow me on Twitter, JaniceOCG. Thanks to Dr. Tommy J. Curry and... um, Study anc dot org, and you will understand the real life, and won't be confused. I'll see all of you on Wednesday at Riverside Church for the memorial for Madiba. Tata Madiba, farewell. Um, December eleventh at five thirty p.m. Uh, the South African Consulate, along with Riverside Church, will be memorializing. Um, Nelson Mandela in New York City.
3: His day is done. Is done. The news came on the wings of a wind reluctant to carry its burden. Nelson Mandela's day is done. The news expected and still unwelcome reached us in the United States and suddenly our world became somber our skies were leaden. his day is done we see you South African people standing speechless at the slamming of that final door through which no traveler returns our spirits reach out to you Bantu, Zulu, Rosa Boer We think of you and your son of Africa, your father, your one more wonder of the world. We send our souls to you as you reflect upon your David, armed with a mere stone facing down the mighty Goliath. Your man of strength, Gideon, emerging triumphant, although born into the brutal embrace of apartheid scarred by the savage atmosphere of racism, unjustly imprisoned in the bloody malls of South African dungeons. Would the man survive? Could the man survive? His answer strengthened men and women around the world. In the Alamo in San Antonio, Texas, on the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, in Chicago's Loop, In New Orleans' Mardi Gras, in New York City's Times Square, we watched as the hope of Africa sprang through the prison's doors, his stupendous heart intact, his gargantuan will pale and hearty. He had not been crippled by brutes, nor was his passion for the rights of human beings diminished by 27 years of imprisonment. Even here in America, we felt the cool, refreshing breeze of freedom. When Nelson Mandela took the seat of presidency in his country, where formerly he was not even allowed to vote, we were enlarged by tears of pride as we saw Nelson Mandela's former prison guards invited courteously by him to watch from the front rows his inauguration we saw him accept the world's award in Norway with the grace and gratitude of the Solon and ancient Roman courts and the confidence of African chiefs from ancient royal stools no sun outlasts its sunset but will rise again and bring the dawn. Yes, Mandela's day is done, yet we, his inheritors, will open the gates wider for reconciliation, and we will respond generously to the cries of blacks and whites, Asian, Hispanics, the poor who live piteously on the floor of our planet. He has offered us understanding. We will not withhold forgiveness, even from those who do not ask. Nelson Mandela's day is done. We confess it in tearful voices, yet we lift our own to say thank you. Thank you, our Gideon. Thank you, our David, our great courageous man. We will not forget you. We will not dishonor you. We will remember and be glad that you lived among us, that you taught us, and that you loved us all.
5: If there was no other legacy from the life of Madiba Nelson Mandela, Madiba taught us one thing, and that is, revolution requires heart, soul, commitment, and sacrifice. Good night and farewell, Madiba. Tata. And to the people of South Africa we say, Amandla, to. May God bless South Africa. Thank you for being with us at Our Common Ground tonight. And thanks to Dr. Tommy J. Curry for joining us.
0: And to all of our chatters,
5: join us on Facebook, Twitter, Janice OCG. I'm Janice Graham.
0: Join us next
5: Saturday, 10 p.m. I'll be listening for you. Speaking truth to power and ourselves.
0: Oh my